Let's turn our Bibles to the book of Exodus. We continue our, our series on prayer. This one is Pray Like Moses Prayed. Again, in our Ohana groups, we're going through a, four, or a season of prayer. The old expression, the church marches forward on its knees. I need to pray more and better and more effectively. So that's what we're doing in our Ohana groups. And to complement that, we're doing this four-part series on Sunday morning. Last week, we were in Ephesians chapter 3. And one of the things, this is Pastor Paul, or the Apostle Paul, was praying for the church. And in verse 17, he goes, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may comprehend with all the saints, meaning this is unity, we're on the same page, we're in this together, what is the width and length and depth and height. And then he says this, to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge. So you go, excuse me, Paul, did you just pray that I would know the unknowable? And what he's inferring is, I think we can all get to know Christ better. I think we can all press in and have more intimacy with him. And so that's what kind of is the background to when Paul, when Moses prayed, Lord, show me your glory. So that's why we're back in Exodus. So Moses had this prayer life that was incredible. And we'll find out that his ministry is what propelled him to further prayer. It gave him things to pray about. So Moses prayed. He pleaded for God to reconsider, and God did. God was ready to wipe out the entire Jewish nation, maybe two million people. And he said, no, no, Moses, I'll just start over with you. Moses pleaded, that's not a good idea, Lord. That's not going to look good. And so God spared the Jewish nation. Amazing. One man prayed for a nation, and God answered that prayer. Wouldn't we have more Moses today? So Moses talked to God face to face like a man talks to his friend. Jesus said, I don't call you guys slaves. I call you my friends. No greater love has anyone than this. And he laid down his life for his friends. So his face would glow. Moses' face would glow after spending time with God. He had this tabernacle of meeting kind of outside the camp of where all the Jews camped. And he'd go in there and spend time with God, and we call it the afterglow. He'd come back out, and his face is lit up. He didn't need electricity for his tent. It was glowing. What a neat trick. He, he didn't even know it. People said, dude, your face, and he had to cover it up. So he had this afterglow from spending time with God, and he's the one that again prayed, Lord, show me your glory. Now, that's where we're going to go. We're gonna, it's going to take a while to get there. This is like a long intro, a very short sermon. I'm, I'm feeling a bit like, like Stephen, the first martyr. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen covers a lot of history in a little bit of time without them turning to various scriptures. He just rehearsed things for them until they finally stoned him to death. Hopefully, we'll have a different outcome this morning, and no one's going to stone me to death. So let's get some idea of the background of Moses. Moses, he starts in, in, Exodus, in, in the book of Exodus. That's the second book of the Old Testament. The first book, Genesis, 50 chapters long. Towards the end of Genesis, God sends Joseph, one of the 12 brothers, to Egypt to prepare the way for the rest of the family. Genesis ends with all 70 Jews. That's all there was at the time. 70 Jews 
they all moved from the Canaan land down to Egypt, and they lived there for 430 years. So Exodus, the second book of the Old Testament, opens up now that those 70 Jews turned into some 2 million Jews. They are slaves. They don't like their life. They uh, just work from sunup to sundown. They can't say what they really want to do. And so in chapter 2, this, this baby Moses is born. Are you with me? And remember what his parents thought? This guy is special. Well, that really doesn't separate them from most parents I know. I mean, no parent gets, oh, what's with this kid? He's ugly. No, they go, what a beautiful kid. He's something special. And so even though the pharaoh, the king at the time, had instructed there were two midwives, uh, Pua, you're one of them. You're in the Bible. That's pretty cool as a woman of faith. And so Pua and her friend are the midwives, and the pharaoh said, when, the, when a woman gives birth, if it's a girl, let her live. If it's a boy, kill him. But the midwives feared God more, and they would spare the boys. So the parents, Moses' parents saw that his special kid. And you know the story? They built this little ark, and they put it with pitch so it wouldn't float, and they put him in the bushes in the Nile River, where there's Nile crocodile. I mean, incredible faith on this part. Of course, Pharaoh's daughter comes along. Oh, look at this man. And she adopts him. Now, history tells us, this is secular history, that Moses was being trained to take over Egypt. So he's going to the finest universities. He's actually led uh, Egyptian armies in battle and made them victorious. So he's kind of like the man on campus. He's, he's kind of like the guy with all the letters, you know, and he's somebody. So then we pick it up in Exodus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. We jumped 40 years. Okay, so now Moses is 40 years old. And even though he's like the man of the hour, the upcomer, and everybody thinks he's something special, he feels in his heart. Now, this is from Hebrews chapter 11. He feels in his heart God has something different for him, has a special calling, and that he's supposed to remember his Jewish roots and set the people free. So... On his own strength, he kills one Egyptian, saying, okay, I'm going to kill someone in God's name. And he ran for the, for the next 40 years of his life. He was found out. He's thinking, I'm in big trouble. And so now in chapter 3 of Exodus, we find Moses is 80 years old. He's working in the desert for his father-in-law. Now, we know that he died at 120, so very quickly. 120 years his life was. It's divided into three groups of 40. The first 40 years, remember, he's being trained up by the Egyptians. You're somebody. And so the first 40 years, he's thinking he's learning to be somebody. The second 40 years, he's in the desert, mostly alone with a bunch of animals, and he's now learning to be nobody. So at 80 years old, God calls him into ministry. And for the next 40 years, Moses learns that God can use anybody. All right? Now, here's the deal. That second 40-year span is perhaps the most important. Without that second 40 years, without learning to be a nobody, 
He can't be used for that last 40-year uh, segment. He's got to do well, learning to be a nobody. So he wrote this Psalm 90. Okay, it's recorded there in your Bible. And Moses writes in Psalm 90 in verse 10, the days of our lives are, like, yeah, 70 years. You know, it's, it's about an average of 70 years. If you're strong, maybe 80 years. After 80 years, he goes, yeah, their boast is only labor and sorrow. <laughs> then we fly away. So what he's saying is Moses thought at 80 his life was over. He's thinking it's over, you know, and he's living this life of regrets. Like, hey, Moses, what did you do with your life? I don't know. I look back and I go, what was that all about? I mean, I, I blew it and, and just taking things on my own. And, and now the last 40 years was a waste. I have no idea. Now I'm going to die. I'm, a, I'm already 80 years old. And God says, watch me. Now I'm ready to use you. So now possibly the most dangerous person in this room this morning is a, quote, 40-year-old Moses. How could you say that? Because you think you've got the education. You've got the experience. You've got the anointing. And you might be the most dangerous person. You might as well be the Apostle Peter in the garden with a sword, cutting off people's ears. All kinds of potential, no power. Just doing it on your own. So here we are, Exodus chapter 3. All right? Moses is working alone in the desert. I'll, I'll read from the New King James Bible. Are you there? I'm told I'm going to get my hand-free my hand mic next week. I miss it dearly. Okay, so chapter 3 of Exodus. Now, Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law. That's amazing. 80 years old, he's still pressing on. He's still working. It's amazing God calls people who are already working. He was the priest of uh, Midian. He led the flock back to the back part of the desert to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. And he looked. Behold, the bush was burning, and burning with fire, and it was not consumed. So Moses, I'm going to turn aside and see what this great sight is why this bush doesn't burn. So then the Lord saw that he turned aside and God called him. Notice he said, Moses, Moses. So when God says your name twice, that's a term of endearment. That's a term of intimacy. Jesus on the cross said, Eloi, Eloi, my God, my God, my, why have you forsaken me? When David, the king, was missing his son, Absalom, Absalom, heartbroken. But here, Moses, Moses, God's saying, you think your life's over. You think you blew it. You think you're winning. What was that about? I'm calling you Moses, Moses, so you know I'm not mad at you. I've got plans for you. So this term of intimacy, and he goes, I'm sending you to, to Egypt. That wasn't the best news Moses could have heard. I'm making you face your fears. You've been running from this place. You're running for your life for 40 years. And I'm making you face your fears. You're going to go back, back to Egypt. So Moses has two questions for God. And God has one question for Moses. So Moses' first question is, who am I? In verse 11, you're, why do you call on me? 
Who am I? So this shows us that finally God has Moses exactly where he wants him. Finally, he has him where he can use him. Finally, 40 years ago, he goes, of course you're calling me. I'd be somebody. Now it's like, who am I? I'm just really good at messing things up. I'm really good at making it bloody and people hurting. Who am I? Oh, it's perfect. Now I can use you. Remember those second 40 years? Indispensable. God could not be doing this work now if he skipped that second 40 years of Moses learning to be a nobody. And so God's answer is, I'll be with you. I'll be with you. Well, that takes faith to receive. So you go, okay, first he says, who am I? His second question is, well, who are you? All I know is this bush is on fire, and yet it's not being consumed, and now I'm actually having a conversation with a fire, and you say, you'll be with me. Who are you? So he says, look, I am who I am. And most say, I know you're, you're sending me to Egypt. You're sending me to two million people. You, you want me to set them free. You want me to go up against Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world at the time. So who's sending me? And so the Jews are going to go, who are you? And who, who sent you? And God says, I, I, I am. I am who I am, meaning I'm the fulfillment of every need you have. I'm the becoming one. You need presence, I'm there. You need power. You need protection. You need guidance. I'm there. I am who I am. It's interesting. So he says, I am sent me. But this is the same. This is what Jesus quotes in John chapter 8. We'll get back to John in, in time. And here's one of the, one of the uh, scriptures where Jesus is claiming to be God. Interesting, God's saying it to Moses, and Jesus said, even before Abraham, who was, what, four or five hundred years before Moses, said, even before Abraham, I am, Jesus was claiming to be God. So now God wants to ask Moses a question, and this is where it really gets interesting. Hey, what's in your hand? Okay, are you understanding this? We know he's got a shepherd's staff in his hand. But maybe he's thinking, are you, are you teasing me, God? Is, is this a joke? You know what should be in my hand. I should have a golden scepter of Egypt. I, I should have all the power in the world. I was the man. Everybody knew it. And now I got a stick. What's in your hand? He said, it's a stick. I'm embarrassed. And God says, you know what? You don't know that stick so well. I mean, this is reading into it a bit. You think you know that stick? Well, you had it for 40 years. Yeah, you know, every splinter in that stick, you know, every, every curve and every knot in the wood, and, and you know how high it is, and you prop it under your chin, and you watch the sheep and the goats. I've seen you use it to play Kung Fu Master and guide some sheep. Here's the deal, Moses. You don't know that thing at all. You're so familiar with your livelihood, you don't know what I can do with your livelihood. So he says, throw it down. And he does, and it becomes a snake, and it says that Moses was afraid. Now, that's only 
if the snake was poisonous. Moses had been in the desert for 40 years. He'd seen every snake available. But there's cobras. Remember the, the headpiece of the, the pharaoh was the, co the hooded cobra. There's vipers out there. There's asps. And so he, whoa. And God said, pick it up by the tail. Would you do that? I mean, wouldn't you take a step back and say, dude, I'm talking to a fire. My stick turned into a snake, a poison, and some voice says, pick it up by the tail. I don't know if you're into snakes. So they, they're weird. Their skin is weird. We were in India once, and uh, they took us to a snake farm. And I'm all excited, as long as they're behind glass. But uh, Joey was with us, Joey Gruber, petrified, petrified of snakes. I'm shocked she got out of the car to go in. And so as we're walking in, I found a tall piece of California grass, and I pulled it, and she had shorts on. And so from behind, like six feet behind, I rub it up on her calf. And it's, oh, I think every snake is alert right now. Just, uh, she's freaking. So we go inside, and I pick up a, a harmless green tree snake. At least they told me it was harmless. And Joey loses it, screams and runs across the snake farm. Surely a king cobra is on the loose. Everybody's going, what is she? It was just in it. But then they brought in a cobra. Somebody, uh, uh, some woman had called in the snake farm and said, hey, there's a cobra in my well. Could you come get it? And they came and got it and released it in this glass enclosure. I have never seen such a crazy snake in my head. It's going all over like this, trying to get out. And I go, okay, if God said, pick it up by the tail, I didn't hear nothing. Would you, honestly, would you do that? Do you understand that from this moment, Moses is exercising all kinds of faith. Pick it up by the tail. And he does. And it turns back into a stick. He says, now take this rod in your hand and go face your fears. This involves your, your, your new ministry. Now, it says that Moses returned. Now we're in verse 20. He returned to the land of Egypt, and he took the rod of God. I, I thought it was the rod of Moses. But now, see, when you throw it down, it's symbolically surrendering it. It's no longer my life. It's no longer my ministry. It's you. It's yours. So now it's become the rod of God. How was it used? Well, Moses used the rod to strike the rivers. Rivers returned to blood. He did it in the, in the sight of all the Egyptians. To understand, he's going, God, I hope you're in this. I hope this isn't some cruel trick where I'm going to look like an idiot in front of the whole nation of the Egyptians. But I'm saying, in God's name, this is going to turn into blood. Boom! And it happened. Then he uh, used the rod. Another plague. These are the ten plagues of Egypt. Frogs came out of the rivers. Were in their kneading bowls as they're making bread. In their ovens. They're everywhere. They worship frogs. God says, let me give you over to the frogs. Lice was coming up. With the rod of God, he hits the dust. The dust pops up and becomes lice. 
Everybody's got lice except the Jews. Goes on, the locusts, it's with the rod. Hold up the rod, locusts are going to come, destroy Egypt. So again, because of his ministry, it affected his prayer life. Some people don't have much of a prayer life. They're not serving God in any capacity. They're not out there with a heart for the lost. They're not out there seeing, I get this picture of the body of Christ where each one of us has at least one spiritual gift and we all come together and use them together and just like a body has elbows and wrists and kneecaps, so does the body of Christ. And it works great when we all do our job. And here we see that having a ministry led him to further prayer. So he asked prayers like, he, his, his prayer in, in Exodus chapter 5. When he goes and declares, hey, God's going to set everybody free, and it completely backfires, the Pharaoh goes, you guys are lazy, so now we're going to up your quantity, and it's going to get worse. And God says, why? I like that. I mean, Moses said, why? Some people are afraid to ask God why, and often it's, you know, really complaining and finding fault, like, it's why, you know, if I were God, it'd be a lot smoother down here. But he said, God, I, this is not turning out anything like I thought it was going to turn out. You know, I, I, I thought I was, I thought I heard from you. I thought I'm obeying. And why, why are you doing this? You know, uh, did I not hear you right? How about this? John the Baptist had doubts. When he was in prison, Jesus wasn't acting like he thought a Messiah should act. And so he sends his boys, go talk to Jesus, you know, my half-cousin. Ask him, what's the deal? You're not, I, I got doubts. I don't know if you're the right guy. But he took his doubts to Jesus. So many today take their doubts to some ungodly college professor who leads them astray. Doubts is a normal part of faith. Getting me back to my Lord and going, okay, Lord, I'm not sure what's going on here, but bring your doubts to Jesus. At the Red Sea, Moses starts praying with the rod, and, and God says, don't pray. Excuse me, I, <laughs> prayer goes with this ministry. He goes, not now. But God, I've got two, two million people of the Jews with me. We got this Red Sea, this body, huge body of water in front of us, kind of these mountain ranges on either side. We got the enemy chasing us down, the most powerful enemy of the world at that time, with chariots. They're going to toast us, and you say, don't even pray. What are you doing? God says, take that rod and part the sea. It's in, come on, most of the time, it's time to pray. But sometimes it's time to move. It's time to do. Now, if you're, don't you, okay, we're back to the stick. And God, this stick has no power over water. And we got two million people, we have, we're toast, we're drowning. He goes, hold it up. And he did, and God parted the, the sea, and the Jews walked over on dry land. When the Egyptian army with their chariots tried to follow through, God collapsed the water. The dry ground turned into muddish stuff. They all drowned. 
such a picture of water baptism. Your past is trying to catch up with you. You're trying to follow God with this new belief in this Savior. And you go down, a dry sinner. You come up, resurrected, if you will, a new creature, a new creation in Jesus Christ. So he says, it's time to move. <laughs> we know about he used the, the rod to hit the rock. Remember, the, 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 again, you got two million people, but you've got herds and cattle and all this stuff and flocks, and there's a lot of water needed. There's no water. And, and he prays, God, what do I do? See that rod in your hand? Take it and hit the rock. Strike the rock, and I'll, I'll bring out enough water to satisfy everyone. We're talking a river. And so Moses goes out there and he goes, okay, I got to strike this rock with the rod. Boom, boom, and the water comes out. But then later, perhaps years later, people are just getting in just a bunch of rebels. I can't stand it. They're always ready to kill me and go back to Egypt. And, and God says, in essence, I'm not mad at them. You're mad at them. Go speak to the rock, and water's going to come out. See, the rock only can be struck once because it's a, a type of Christ who would be smitten or crucified once, not twice. So Moses comes out with his rod, mad at people. Do I have to hit this rock? Uh, no, you don't. You just speak to it. Now, do I have to hit this rock? Boom, boom. Now, God, who is faithful to meet the needs of his people, allows the water to come. But to Moses, he said, come here. We need to talk. You're not going in the promised land. Not because you killed the Egyptian, not because you're a murderer, but because you didn't hallow me in a presence in the sight of everyone. So this last week in our Ohana groups, we were talking about the Lord's Prayer our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And you go, what is that supposed to mean? You go back to the story of Moses. We know how not to hallow God. You don't properly represent him. You don't properly honor him. And God, so when you pray, hallowed be your name, Lord, I don't want to be guilty of what Moses was guilty of. I want to honor you in public. So then Moses prayed at times for victory in war. Remember, holding up the rod. He prayed for healing for his, his sister. You remember his story? One of my favorite stories of healing. Moses marries an Ethiopian woman. Most Ethiopians are black. So it's an interracial marriage. His second marriage, he's already married to another gal, had some kids with her. And Miriam has issues. And so it says that Miriam and Aaron go in to talk to Moses but in the original language, it's in the feminine, so we know Miriam was leading the way. Most, uh, Aaron seems to be more of a follower than, okay, you want a calf, I'll make a calf. Okay, you want to accuse Moses, I'll be with you. And so Miriam was smitten with leprosy. And I love Moses' prayer. Lord, heal her, I pray. I I'm not opposed to long prayers. But when I have faith to move mountains, it only takes a grain of seed, of a, a mustard seed. So he prays for Miriam. And he even prayed and heard, no. No, you're not going in the promised land. 
Now, when Moses prayed in Exodus 33, so this is what we're leading up to. Remember I said long intro, short sermon. Moses had been up on the mountain, right, from Exodus 20 on, getting the Ten Commandments, getting, getting the specifics of making this spectacular outfit for his brother, Aaron, who was the high priest. And stuff said, holiness to the Lord. I mean, just specific. Do you make this for Aaron? I'm thinking, Aaron's causing an entire backslide down, down the mountain. People said, you know, I don't know where Moses is. He's been 40 days, 40 nights. Let's just make up our own God. Let's, you know, uh, hey, a, a golden calf. And we'll all take off our earrings, throw it in the fire, and Aaron, you, you fashion it into a calf. Okay. And later on he told Moses, I don't know what happened, man. I threw gold in the fire and out jumped the calf. Do you think Moses believed that? Anyway. So Moses is coming down the mountain with the tablets, the Ten Commandments. And he hears what, what is going on? It sounds like a war. No, it's a party. His, his brother was leading the entire nation in a back, backslide. They had fashioned this idol, and it says they sat down to eat and they rose up to play. It's a euphemism saying they were having an orgy. And in their mind, they're fine with this, that this is the way to serve God. You just get naked and have sex, and it's great. He's going, how do you have this mindset? How do you have this worldview that this is good with your God? I don't get it. Do you know the, a, a, a worldview are these lenses, if you will, through which I look to see, observe, perceive, process, and see where I fit in on all this stuff? So you be careful about people's worldview. You have politicians today who are advertising for the upcoming election, November. I hope you're ready to make a difference. But they're after, I don't know if you've seen, I just, their, their worldview is, hey, Jesus never said anything about abortion. What are they saying? Abortion's fine. Jesus never said nothing. That's their worldview. And there's multitudes going, okay, I guess that works. I'm thinking, how asinine? How can you believe such a thing? Jesus never said anything about me beating my wife. Does that mean it's okay? Jesus never said anything about robbing banks or, or um, what's, the, what's the new drug? The pen, I don't know why I'm looking at you. What? Fentanyl. Yeah, I don't know. You got secrets there? I don't know. But anyway, he never said anything about fentanyl. You know fentanyl's the number one killer for American men aged 19 to I think 40, 49? Number one. Jesus never said anything. Does that make it okay? I mean, how stupid. What a worldview that, oh, I think it's okay with Jesus. He never talked to The Bible says plenty about God at work in the woman's womb. Read Psalm 139. Read Jeremiah chapter 1. You'll be convinced that God places worth on the preborn. But that's their worldview. And Moses looking around going, my brother's worldview, I guess this is fine. I guess this is great, just party naked. God, I want a biblical worldview. Could you show me your glory in contrast to what I've just witnessed? 
in contrast to this worldview that I'm seeing? What's a biblical worldview? What, what are you really like? And so that's when God says, okay, I'll show you. Now we're in chapter 34, if you want to turn there. Sorry if I got excited and woke some of you up. <laughs> sorry, not sorry. And uh, so in 33, Exodus 33, Moses said, hey, can, show me your glory. God says, well, you can't see my face and live, but uh, I'll put you in this rock and I'll pass by. I'm not real sure how that works. Something miraculous is going on. And so in verse 34, or in chapter 34, beginning in verse 6, God passes by. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful. So the first thing God wants you to know about his character and about his personality, if you want a true worldview, God wants you to know he is full of mercy. There are people who say, well, there's one God in the Old Testament, one in the New. Well, here's the God of the Old Testament. He wants you to know he's full of mercy. He wants you to know, Moses, Moses, you think you've thrown your life away. I'm just getting started. Merciful. Gracious. I'm, uh, I'm going to get through this. Because in studying, I couldn't get it. I just... Uh, broke down. He's long-suffering. It's not like I got a short fuse and you're basically bugging me. He goes, no, I put up with you for a long time. I'm abounding in goodness and truth. And my heart breaks for those who don't know this God. They don't know that he abounds. With, it's not this little sprinkling. That's enough. That's enough. It abounds. Overflow. My cup overflows. Keep in mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. There he's listing the three types of sin. Sin is falling short. It's actually trying to get a bullseye, but your arrow falls short. Transgression is, oh, there's a line, and you cross it. Whether you know it or not. It could be that you're walking on some grass, and halfway across it, you come across a sign, keep off the grass. You've already broken it. You've already transgressed. But he lists first iniquity, which is the worst kind. It's this twisted, evil, spite, like, I don't care what God says. I'm going to do it. I don't care what the consequence. I'm going to do it. Who cares? And he goes, I forgive all those. But by no means clearing the guilty. I, I, God's saying, I just don't wink at sin. Ah, oh, that's okay. I know you got a sin nature. He takes it very seriously, and that's why he sent Jesus to be brutally murdered on a cross. So again, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. A lot of people trip out on that. But you need to take it in context of the whole Bible. The idea is God really blesses a lot of people for generations. Elsewhere in the commandments, he says, when he talks about visiting for the third or fourth generation, 
he adds, to those who keep on doing this. And it is a shame. Uh, Proverbs. Proverbs says, don't associate with a man given to anger, lest you learn his ways. And so often the kids are watching dad. Oh, he's a man of anger. That's how you treat the wife. Okay. And they're ready to repeat their mistakes. Or they watch the mom, you know, getting cut off in line at Walmart. Ooh, the volcano erupts. I guess that's how you respond. But then you go further. And how many kids are messed up because their parents are messed up on drugs? And they leave them places and forget about them. And there's no food on the table because they got to have their next... Uh, Next dose, next fix. Then you got, and I don't know how this works, dads who abuse their kids sexually. And it's untold damage. Untold damage, and it can go on from generation to generation. But the emphasis here is mercy and grace and forgiveness. He is full of of mercy. Now, had Moses never thrown down the rock? We're going back to that first encounter. And again, it, it, it symbolizes what's in your hand, give it to the Lord. Watch him do something. Had Moses never done that, he wouldn't have been involved in, in the ten plagues. He wouldn't have told the Egyptians, watch this. Blood, watch this. Lice, frogs, you know, all this stuff. He wouldn't have parted the Red Sea. He wouldn't have done all these miracles. We wouldn't have seen the manna. It's just the, the provisions, the protections. It just started with, hey, what's in your hand? Give it to me. You think you know it so well, so this morning God asked you a question. What's in your hand? We read recently in, uh, while we were in John about this little kid. I, I don't know, I got some fish, some loaves. <laughs> you got like 10, 15,000. It says there's 5,000 men. They didn't count the women and children. It's a ton of people. Hey, kid, what's in your hands? Why don't you put it at the feet of Jesus? All right. That's the last we heard about the kid. But what happened after that? Now, I'm, I don't know. I'm picturing a seven-year-old like my grandson. You know, and just sometimes he's just such a giving guy. He's just like, <laughs> he just blesses me. And here, okay, you know, my mom gave me some extra food. And here, you can take it. I don't know what it's going to do. And, and, but he, I, I think he stayed there. I think he watched Jesus and, and rip the, the fish and the bread and then just multiplies and all these people are glutted. They're full, so full. Oh, man, it's Thanksgiving all over. And he's gone. That's because I gave him my fish and my loaves. This is going to change my life. So he goes back home. And his Jewish mother, why are you so late? Mom, you wouldn't believe it. You're right. <laughs> I don't believe, well, I gave the fish and Jesus did, and he invented all these. Okay, you're going to spank twice, once for being late, once for lying, until the neighbors come over. Did you hear what happened with your son today? What did he do now? He gave his fish and loaves to Jesus. 
Jesus. <laughs> he fed us all. Okay, that kid grows up. How many times do you think he retold that story? I'm picturing him now in junior high, going to the junior high youth group and saying, uh, you know, anybody got something to share? I, I might have something to share. I gave Jesus my fish and loaves. He fed tons. Does the same thing years later in senior high group. Now he's married with some little kid. Hey, Dad, tell us again. Tell us how did that happen? What were you thinking? What were you feeling? Now he's got grandkids. Hey, Papa. Hey, Grandpa. Tell us again. You think you ever got tired? Of t oh, that's such an old story. Life-changing. Peter, when you stepped out of the boat, on could you tell us the story again? I mean, we're here for a Bible study, but could you tell us your testimony of what Jesus did? So this morning, he's asking you, what, what's in your hand? And you go, well, I, I've got a hammer. I've had it for 40 years. I know every splinter in it, the curves, the grip, the balance. I've done a lot with this hammer, and Jesus says, put it at my feet. Surrender it. And you do. Jesus said, with this hammer, I'm going to send you to Costa Rica. I'm going to send you to Mexico, and you're going to bless families, entire villages, we will see reconciliation. We will see churches grow and be blessed because you surrendered your hammer. What do you have? I, I have a needle and thread. <laughs> I don't know. I like sewing. Put it at his feet. I'll send you as a missionary to Costa Rica, Mexico, Philippines. You'll teach people how to sew. You will grant families, livelihoods, they'll be able to put food on the table. You will bless people <laughs> with a needle and throw. Oh, yes. You'll show them how to make quilts, how to make sweaters, how to clothe themselves in, in hot or cold. Well, what do you have? I, I have a, a spatula. <laughs> what are you, you going to do? You know, sing an Italian song or something? Just uh, give me your spatula. We have this outreach called Fish and Loves. We provide hot food. Well, first Jersey Mike's, who's totally into this, and Jersey Mike's and his, his wife are both Christians. They give us 150 subs every, every month. Usually they're out here with us. So we have subs, but we also have plate lunch. What do you got? I got, I got a spatula. Give it to me. You want to reach this community and they're not exactly coming into the church building? They'll come for food. I'm going to anoint your spatula. You're going to touch people in this North Shore community who will see the love of God in action. They'll see the body of Christ functioning as the body of Christ. The earlobes and the, the elbows and the knee. They're all working together. Why? To, to spread this message of love and that Jesus Christ forgives people. Oh, I, I, I have a camera. <laughs> what are you going to do with a camera? 
Are you serious? Give it to me. Proverbs 10, 7 says, The memory of the righteous is blessed. Now, I've made my, my share of mistakes that are not so blessed, but I've made my share of good things, and they're blessed. And you, with your camera surrendered to Jesus Christ, could take a picture of that moment? Are you serious? Do you know what I do? Do you you know how long I spend gazing at pictures that are decades old and and it brings back all the memories and the love and the warmth and the joy and, and you did that because you gave Jesus your camera. He says, I'll use this to bless people with righteous memories for generations. Oh, I, I've got a guitar. Ooh. Give it to me. I'll use your guitar to bring a little of heaven to earth. And people will worship. And they'll be open up to the move of the Holy Spirit. They'll, they'll receive encouragement and cleansing and healing just as the worship is going on. Give me that guitar. Oh, no, three chords. That's all I need. Do acapella the rest. Well, I, I just have a notepad. I have a pen and paper. I have a, you know, a typewriter. And I'm not good with words. I bet I got. I mean, Can you write out a scripture? Psalm 23.3. He restores my soul. Can you write a note? I mean, a real note and snail mail it? In the mail with a postage stamp? This is going back like 30 decades, but you just say, hey, uh, I was thinking of you this morning. I prayed, and you know that God restores our soul. May he restore you today. Is that hard? Put it in the mail. Do you know you can maybe turn someone's life around with a card, with, with a word of encouragement? I told you about my friend, a uh, pastor in uh, Bihar, India, Pastor Je- uh, Jebel Kumar. He's going home one day, walking down the street, and he sees a church member. Hey, bro, praise the Lord. I go, okay, and keeps going. And the next Sunday in church, he sees this guy and goes, hey, so why did you do that? Why did you say that? Goes, I don't know, I just wanted to... Praise the Lord with me. He goes, well, I was on my way home to commit suicide. And because of your word of encouragement, I didn't. I just have a notepad. I don't, I don't know. I, are you, can you write down a scripture? Uh, well, I, I, I've got a watch in my hand. Well, what is that supposed to mean? I have time. I don't work as much as I used to. You know, I, I've got some spare time. And, and maybe somebody needs to sit with someone, have a cup of coffee. I, I, I've got car keys. What does that mean? People might need to move. They might need a ride to the doctor. I'm available. You go, I don't have a car. I don't have a camera. I don't have a guitar. I've got empty hands. You know what you can do? I have hugs. And I can love people in Jesus' mighty name. And God will say, I'm putting you in our children's ministry. Those kids need some hugs from godly, holy people 
with no agenda other than I love you and God loves you. And you will change people's lives. Just give those hugs to me. You'll change people's lives. They'll leave there. They get, well, they can't wait to get there on Sunday morning. Then they don't want to leave because it's so much love and joy and peace. And then they grow up following Jesus Christ. What's in your hand? This morning, I think I just shared a few. I think the Holy Spirit puts a spotlight on your heart and say this. This is what I want before you leave this gymnasium this morning. Now, if you're here today and you're far from God, he wants you to know he's full of mercy. He's ready to forgive sin, transgression, and iniquity. It needs a confession. You need to be born again. I'm not calling up your education or your experience or how much sin you did. Jesus said, unless you're born again, you won't even see the kingdom of heaven. You're born once physically, but you're born again spiritually, where you surrender more than a hammer, more than a camera. You surrender your heart. And you pray something simple like, God, I blew it. I put more effort into running from you than coming to you, but today I surrender. Would you forgive? Would you cleanse? Would you have me? And you'll find a God who says yes.